we, um, we, we, we love the communities that we've been a part of over the past years, but we believe that there is something very, very special happening within this community, and it is because of you guys and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So um, thank you. Thank you very much. So I was raised in Bixby. Um, any Bixby ends in the house? Woo! Yeah, we don't really like to acknowledge it. Yeah. Tulsa. Yeah. South Tulsa. Uh, I was raised in, so I was raised in Bixby, um, single parent household at the end of my fourth grade year due to some unfortunate circumstances and events. Uh, in a beautiful way, I got to come and live with my dad. So my parents divorced when I was really young. I've been in occupational ministry for 10 years now. I don't say full-time ministry because I believe we're all called to full-time ministry, right? And if you're a parent, you are at this point and stage in my life, you are in far more full-time ministry than I'm in. And so grace and peace over you. We pray for you daily. If we believe that children are a product of learned behavior, then you are absolutely Jesus to your children. And so we pray for you. Um, if you're a single parent, uh, I know that struggle. I know what it's like to be raised in a single parent household and the emotional, physical, mental, and financial strain. Um, so grace and peace all over you. So we came to live with my dad when I was in fourth grade. My grandparents stepped in and helped to raise us. If you're a grandparent helping raise your grandchildren or participating in any level in their development, grace and peace all over you. You will never know uh, how much that will mean to your grandkids. Uh, my grandfather is everything to me. Uh, my grandmother was here last night, uh, which was awesome. My dad was here last night. Uh, my grandfather was here. His body, um, his body gave out last year, but I definitely believe that he was here with us this, this whole weekend. So they raised us. My grandparents are pretty much responsible for um, our spiritual formation. My dad worked a lot because, again, it was a single-parent household. And so my grandparents were really the ones who shepherded us, watched us a lot of the time, took us in. And they raised us in a small Southern Baptist church in Bixby, the kind where everyone, every family has their own pew. Right? And you sat in the exact same pew every single weekend. And heaven forbid you sat in somebody's pew. It was like a war zone. <laughs> my family, my grandfather was the president of the Oklahoma Gospel Singing Association. And so there was a rich background of perfect three to five part harmonies. <laughs> and so you always wanted to sit by my family because it sounded amazing. It's true. The only form of entertainment we had, because where I went to church, there wasn't really a children's ministry, so kids were in the midst of church, right? It's just how we did things. We didn't have iPads or anything else. The only form of entertainment was when my grandmother would give us an offering envelope and let us slowly open it and draw on the inside. And then we also had, lastly, what was affectionately uh, and fearfully referred to as the hand of God. And that was any time my brother and I messed up, it was like out of nowhere, the hand of God hit us and immediately the fear of Jesus was put into us and we didn't say another word. I found Jesus. I entered into what we call the personal relationship with Jesus in sixth grade. Uh, like probably many of you did summer camp. I grew up in a small Southern Baptist church where the music was an organ, a piano and a 50 member choir. And so to go to camp for the very first time, it was overwhelming. There's lights, like fog machines. 
the guy talking was like super cool and not like 80. <laughs> this is before, like he had carpenter pants on. It was before skinny jeans, but they were so rad. I'm like, I got to get some of those, right? And so he's talking and it's a Baptist camp. So like the end of the night, it's like all about the altar call and the music's really loud and emotional and empowering. And it's just big. And Hillsong is like just coming on the scene. This is the early nineties. And like this whole worship movement was just happening. So we were like right in the thick of it. And so at the end of the first night of camp, typically at camp, you want to wait like two or three days before you give your life to Jesus, right? You need to rebel a little bit. You need to make sure you're not going to meet your future wife in sixth grade. But first night, man, like we're all in and we're like, we're going down to the front and we like, we give our lives to Jesus. There's tears everywhere. We're not really even sure what we're committing our life to, but it feels really good. And the next day we go and we see some girls that are kind of cute. So that night we come back and we rededicate our salvation. And then the next day we had like this formal And so that was a nightmare because I'd got hooked up with a really cute girl. And so then I rededicated my rededication that night. (laughs) And that's how church went for me for a long time because I didn't quite understand what it was that I was saying yes to, right? And so my life, my, my first few years of Christian faith was merely a rededication of a rededication because I didn't understand what it was I was saying yes to. I came to live with my dad, um, and I don't say this to celebrate it. When I was a kid, I went through some really, just some messy stuff. Um, There was some abuse and some neglect uh, in our childhood that really shouldn't have been there, right? I'm so thankful for uh, the family that, my family that took me in and and really um, shaped me into who I am. But I had a lot of questions, Because if the God that I read about is this loving God who never wants harm to happen to his children, then like, what did that mean for me? So it wasn't that I was bad. I was like sad. I was confused. I was lost. I was lonely. Because I was always taught to believe that my personal relationship with God was just that. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the only analogy that like would work for people to tell me was like, it's like this poem. It's like you and Jesus and there's like sand And there's footprints. And it's you and Jesus walking. And sometimes there's one set of footprints. What? So I'm very confused. (laughs) And I'm confused because, like, my faith felt really heavy at times. So I wasn't sure if, like, I was on Jesus' back or if Jesus was on my back. (laughs) Because I didn't know what was carrying what. And so there was this independence, this very immature independence to my faith where questions weren't being answered and I didn't understand what was happening and I didn't have an authentic community to come and to wrestle with. I didn't have a student community that I could come and I could just say, listen, guys, I really, I don't even understand what it is that I believe. And I don't even understand what it is that we're saying yes to. And I have a lot of questions because when I came to church, I felt like everything had to be really like in a neat box and it couldn't be messy because there were, like, there were two people that answered the altar call and their families represented them. And there were the families that were like, we're so excited you're answering the altar call. Yes, go share your sin with the world and repent. And then there's the other family who's like, do not go up front because we don't want you saying what's going on in our family. 
And it was through no fault of my own family, but I felt like I was in that camp. Like I was raised in a really beautiful Christian tradition in a Christian home and my grandparents were amazing, but like I wasn't so amazing, I didn't think. And I didn't want to embarrass anybody. So my faith become, became really lackluster. And I became very, very confused about what it is that I did and didn't believe. And I was lonely. Because I think while we would all agree that we've been individually saved, how many would agree also that we aren't the only individual saved? That God in his creation is reconciling us and has been reconciling us back into community with himself. He created Eve for Adam. He himself exists in a very mysterious way in the Trinity. And so there's this need for deep Christ-centered community. And you would think that this would be an amazing time, an amazing era in which to live, because actually we're more connected than we've ever been. Facebook alone claims over 1.1 billion users, right? Thanks to Instagram and Twitter, I can tell you what I had for lunch, how it was prepared, whether it was good or not, who I had it with, where I had it, the exact time I had it, and I can put a really pretty filter on it and make you want to eat what I had for lunch. (laughs) We have a platform to push agenda, right? We feel entitled to say the things that we feel like we need to say. We're more connected than we've ever been. We're more informed. We're more social than any other generation in history. But what we're finding is that connectivity doesn't necessarily equate to community. And so we find ourselves in a new type of loneliness. I want you to watch this video. A simple thought, monkeys that are known to have a developed social life organize in small groups of several dozen members. The size of each of these groups is limited. In order for them to function, all members of the group need to know each other well. The average size of the group changes from 20 to 50 members. When the number of monkeys in a group passes a certain threshold, the social order crumbles and the group tends to split into two separate groups. A similar situation can be found amongst humans as well. The invention of language and gossip has helped us shape larger and more stable groups. Sociological research indicates that the maximum natural size of a group of humans is roughly 150 members. Most humans are just incapable of intimately knowing more than 150 people, so even today the threshold of human organization is around the number of 150 members. Man is a social creature, and the feeling of loneliness can drive them mad. Yet the Western and modern world sanctions individuality. The individual is measured by personal achievements, such as having a career, wealth, a self-image, and consumerism. In this course of action, many people lose their social and familial connections in favor of a self-actualization ideal. As the social fabric in the Western world weakens, it is not surprising that more and more people define themselves as lonely. And thus, loneliness has become the most common ailment of the modern world. One of the possible reasons for this ailment is the online social network. In a world where time is money, in which our surroundings heavily pressure us to achieve more and more, our social life becomes tainted and more demanding than ever before. And then there's technology. Simpler, hopeful, optimistic, ever young. We become addicted to virtual romance, disguised by the social network which supplies an impressive platform that allows us to manage our social life most effectively. However, Our fantasies about substitutions are starting to take a toll. We're collecting friends like stamps, 
not distincting quantity versus quality, and converting the deep meaning and intimacy of friendship with exchanging photos and chat conversations. By doing so, we're sacrificing conversation for mere connection, and so a paradoxical situation is created, in which we claim to have many friends while actually being lonely. So what is the problem in having a conversation? Well, it takes place in real time, and you can't control what you're going to say. And that is the bottom line. Texting, email, posting, all of these things let us present the self as we want it to be. We get to edit, and that means we get to delete. Instead of building true friendships, we're obsessed with endless personal promotion, investing hours on end building our profile, pursuing the optimal order of words in our next message, choosing the pictures in which we look our best, all of which is meant to serve as a desirable image of who we are. We're expecting more from technology and less from each other. The social networks aren't just changing what we're doing, but also who we are. And that's because technology appeals to us most where we are most vulnerable. And we are vulnerable. We are lonely, but we're afraid of intimacy, while the social networks offer us three gratifying fantasies. One, that we can put our attention wherever we want it to be. Two, that we will always be heard. And three, that we will never have to be alone. And that third idea, that we will never have to be alone, is central to changing our psyches. It's shaping a new way of being. The best way to describe it is, I share, therefore, I am. We use technology to define ourselves by sharing our thoughts and feelings, even as we're having them. Furthermore, we're faking experiences so we'll have something to share, so we can feel alive. We slip into thinking that always being connected is going to make us feel less alone, but we are at risk because the opposite is true. If we are not able to be alone, we're only going to know how to be lonely. So while I grew up with this unhealthy independence of immaturity, there's now a new dependence that many of us uh, find ourselves in, which limits authentic face-to-face -face relationships in, in favor of a glamour shot, edited version of our lives. And the problem is that these images are really half-truths, right? They're the, they're the foot that we want to put forward. It takes out all the mess and allows you to see only the good in me. But the problem with that is we can never keep up with it, right? Because then we're left with, if you really knew me, you probably wouldn't like me. So we keep it edit-friendly. And our insecurities and our loneliness grows as we can continue to compare our unedited lives with the edited lives of those around us. And why? Well, because real Christ-centered relationships, they're messy. And sometimes they're uncomfortable, right? It's as uncomfortable in a little way as trying to find a seat this morning and having to walk over people and sit by people you don't know. It's a little, it's just a little like, I don't, I don't it's a little weird. It's uncomfortable. It happens in real time. You can't edit it. You can't control it but it's authentic, it's real, and it's life-giving. So as I said, there was this unhealthy independence that shuns community, and then there's this dependence that relies on inauthentic community. I think the gospel, though, is pulling us back to, and, and that's the title of the message today, is, is this liturgy of interdependence, and interdependence is just being dependent on more than one thing. And I believe that for us to be incredibly healthy, there has to be a, a, a delicate balance of necessary solitude and authentic Christ-centered community. 
We read it over and over again in Scripture that, uh, that we are to retreat and to pray. Christ models it in saying that uh, God is often found in the still and in the quiet. But in our culture, silence is deafening. I know even for myself in studying, I typically have music on behind me because there's something about being alone and there's something about being silent and there's something about not being distracted. But we often find that that's the very place that we find God. And likewise, there's a calling to authentic Jesus-centered community, one that gives life, one that is messy. We read in Romans 12, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. I want to hit on a couple of these today and just a couple for the sake of time. I am a youth pastor and so I try to limit my conversation to 20 minutes. So lucky you, you'll get out early today. (laughs) Praise be to the Lord. (laughs) Let love be genuine. Genuine love happens when we recognize that we've fallen short. The root word for church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. We're a community of ragamuffin people from different backgrounds and different facets of life, all bringing our collected junk into the center and saying, this is what we have to offer Jesus. Take it. I love what Pastor Ed says when he says, a church should be a place that when people walk in, they say, what in the world are people doing here together? Why in the world would all of these different people come together? And we find it's this. We find it's the table. I love what Dr. Green says when he says, listen, if your church all looks like you, all talks like you, all believes the exact same thing that you do, and there's never a disagreement and nothing is ever messy, probably not a church. I love it. We're mercifully placed together, and I believe that when community is honest and authentic, that it allows us to remove masks. Because Christ frees us from needing to be hypocrites. That's why at the end of every, uh, every gathering that we have, I usually um, close our service with the benediction. I've gotten a couple of really fun nicknames since I've been at Sanctuary. One is Pocket Praiser. Um, because I'm kind of a little guy and I sing worship. And some of the older, some of the older crowd said that uh, they wanted to put me in their pocket and take me home. Yeah. Yeah. Works for me. Uh, and then the other one is the confirming closer. Great. I'm, I'm glad I can be that. And so I always, I always remind you that you are loved and I remind you that you are valued and I remind you that our community is richer because you're a part of it. And those aren't just lip service. As somebody who has come from a little bit of a broken background, as someone who has found instability in the church and then regained instability in the community of who God has placed them in and what the church is supposed to be about, understand that the mess that you bring into here, the inconsistencies, the way that you stumble, and also the way that you walk, the way that you rise up, and the way that Christ takes a hold of you, that is what makes our community so rich. You. Our community would not be what it is without you, mess included. 
Because when you're weak, you allow us that are strong the opportunity to be strong. When you're strong, you allow us that are weak the opportunity to be weak and to be broken. There is a constant reconciliation between us. We make each other stronger when love is genuine. We abhor what is evil. I love sanctuary because it is an absolute safe place to wrestle with matters of faith. To wrestle with where God has placed you in this season. But the beautiful thing about true, authentic, Christ-centered community is it doesn't leave you where you are. It loves you enough to say, let's keep moving towards continued repentance. One of the hard parts for me about being in um, accountability groups and prayer groups is I long for accountability. But accountability requires repentance and it requires a check-in and a check-up. Far too often our prayer circles are just that. It's a celebration of my confession, but then there's nothing on the back side of that. So then when Monday comes or Tuesday comes and I'm failing, I need someone. True Christ-centered community calls us back to the cross, calls us back to the table, and consistently and continually challenges us to be more Christ-like today than we were yesterday. And when we fall, we pick each other up because we don't allow each other to live in sin. I believe we need this because we're often the most blind to the areas that we need the most correction. I find a deep amount of my confession and in my repentance in my wife, which is hard. Because when you find accountability in your wife, it means that you have to like release control. And if you're anything like me, if you're a husband, like control is like the name of the game. Not because I want to control. It's just because I'm normally right. (laughs) My wife has problems sometimes. And thank God for her, I can fix them all. (laughs) It's it's absolutely true. If you don't believe me, ask me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting... um, In all seriousness, far too many times I do try to fix things when all my wife wants me to do is listen to her. And I try to be in control when the very thing that God is calling me to is to release control. You got to be careful what you pray for, right? Because when you pray for God to release control, sometimes he just puts more opportunities in your path that make you want to control things, right? Far too often when you pray, God, just let me have a heart of love. He puts people in your path, not that are easy to love, but that are incredibly hard to love, to push you. Because he never said it was going to be easy. I'm on the couch with my wife a couple months ago. And uh, we're doing the marriage thing. We're hanging out. We're spending time together. And quality time for us looks very different to each of us. To me, we're on the couch together. We're in the same place. We're sitting here watching Lost. We're... We got into Lost because of Sanctuary. Because everybody's like, oh, Lost, it's a great show. We've seen it. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess we got to watch it. That in Portlandia. And so... And so we're in the thick of it. And so we're watching, we're watching TV, we're watching this show on Netflix. And listen, like, we're spending quality time together. Like, I'm beside you. We're hanging out. I may be checking messages. I'm a youth pastor, so students are texting me with their issues and, or just to say hello. And I love it, so I'm going to text them back. Like, that's my role. I'm a youth pastor. I need to text them back. I may be checking the latest Instagram post of um, something that I posted about how happily married we are sitting here watching a show as I neglect my wife. 
Here we are, happy and in love. Smile, babe. Thanks. Right? Got a couple likes on that. Got somebody saying, I'm an amazing husband. Win. Maybe I'm updating my Facebook on how amazing of a husband I am because I make time for my wife to do the things that she loves, which really are probably more the things that I love to do. But it's going to get a lot of likes and a lot of you are going to respect me for it. And I'm going to increase my platform because everything's about the platform. My wife looks at me and she's not mad. But she looks at me and she says, your whole ministry is built on this idea of living life together and community and providing a place where we're transparent to the person in front of us and we're always available to the person in front of us. But when you're in front of me, you're always on your phone. When am I going to be enough? Crap. <laughs> it's the worst. It's like the worst. Because there's this disconnect between who I say I am and then who I actually am. David, a guy in the Old Testament, this king, and you know the story. He wants for nothing, right? He's got everything in the world and an empire. He's on his roof one evening. I guess David was a stargazer. And he catches a woman bathing on the roof next to him. If you're a theologian, please meet me after service. I would like to know why women freely bathed on rooftops. Um, <laughs> Or she was the only one. We don't read of any other bathing women on rooftops. Like, maybe she's just a rogue woman who's like, it's a nice night. I'm going to take my pail up. <laughs> Certainly no one else is going to be on their roof. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> and so there's David. And so then David sends his guards, as you know the story, over, takes Bathsheba, brings her back, um, he does some things with Bathsheba that probably aren't uh, altogether biblical. Bad day for David. David finds out that this woman's husband uh, works for him in his army, right? And so he tells some other people in the army, listen, the next time you go to battle, I want you to put him at the front line. And then when things get really bad, I want you to kind of pull back and allow him to meet his demise. This happens. Again, really awful um, season for David in his life. 2 Samuel 12, we read about a prophet named Nathan that comes on the scene, and it's will be on the screen. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And then David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man crushed, right? Because there's this disconnect about who we say we are. There's this disconnect about how we present ourselves to be. But it's in that very disconnect that we find freedom. It's the reason that we put so much focus into this Lenten season. That's why Pastor Ed shared a God journey here on a Saturday morning. It's the reason that we have uh, multiple ways for you to connect individually 
a Lenten guide on our website. We have a, a Facebook page where you can go and, and just find daily scriptures and daily prayers because we, we believe and we champion that there is something very, very personal between you and Jesus Christ. That Christ came, died, was buried, and resurrected for you and for the forgiveness of your sin individually. And so there is a necessary solitude that has to happen, and there is very much a personal journey that you are on that we love helping you through, but at the end of the day, it's yours. On the flip side of that, it's also why we believe so strongly in house church and why we put so much focus and leaned into small community because we believe life transformation happens when we come together over a common meal and we come to the table together and we admit together that we are broken in need of restoration, that we can pray for one another, that we can rejoice in happy seasons, cry together in desperate seasons, but always be hopeful together. In closing, I'd like to pray for you. If you would bow your heads. May you find your footing in the dance of solitude and community. May the Lord give you real life experiences of loving each other and yourselves to provide a way of remembering the fullness of God's love for us in Christ. When pain and vulnerability, past experiences and insecurities make us forget for a moment about everything God is and everything he's done, may we choose to love each other and ourselves. And may we be brought back continually to the table. We pray to the Lord. There's no greater example of this liturgy of interdependence than the table because it is very much for you. It is very much a representation of Christ's life given for you. But it's also something very, very communal that we gather together, and that is what brings us together. We sing songs, and we praise God, and we listen to a word. But it's the table that we come for, to feast on the body and blood of a resurrected Christ. Would you stand? Those who are serving communion, would you come forward? Last week, Dr. Green spoke about Father Schmiemann who is a favorite theologian of mine. I love what he says about the table. He said that man fell in sin. Instead of partaking in the blood of Christ, he chose the bread of the earth. And the bread of the earth is dead. Everything that you put in your body is dead. All food is dead. That's why we keep it in refrigerators, like corpses. But to come to the table is the one meal that is alive. And it is the one meal that brings life. As we prepare our hearts to receive and to partake in the Eucharist this morning, let us pray as our Father taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. Amen.
we continue to pray. God, through your goodness, we bring this bread and this cup, which has come from the earth and through the work of human hands as an offering to you. We invite your presence into this moment. We celebrate that you have chosen this meal to make us one in Christ and one with each other. We offer these gifts in ourselves in a single living act of praise. Amen. Would you lift the bread? On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body. So Christ Jesus, in this moment, we believe that somehow, in a mysterious way, that you are entering this bread and is becoming for us the body of Christ. So Lord Jesus, we welcome you. And in the same way, if you would lift the cup. After supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant. This is my blood. Drink of this. And when you do, remember me. And so, Father, right now, we believe that your son, Jesus Christ, is entering into the cup and that is becoming for us the blood of Christ. Again, Lord Jesus, we welcome you. Let us declare the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So come to the table, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed. The table is open to you.